Good morning. Welcome to another online Sunday. I'm Pastor Sam. For those of you who may not know me, I know we've been having a few more visitors check out the stream, which is pretty awesome. Something we're excited about, and hopefully we'll get a chance to meet you in person when all this is over and we can get back together. This morning we're going to talk about something that's been on my heart for a while, since last fall, and now is the right time to talk about that, and I'll explain a little bit more about what I mean. But before we begin, please join me in prayer. God, thank you for how incredible you are. Thank you for what you're doing and the ways you move, your infinite wisdom and your perfect plans. Lord, we ask that you would teach us in this time. Don't let these be my words. Let this be a time where we hear from you as we open your word to learn more about who you are and how great you are. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this idea that I want to open with, and we'll be in Isaiah 43 if you want to turn there. Uh, if you're using your physical Bible, it'll be a little bit past halfway. If you're using an app, look for a little bit half, uh, a little bit past halfway on the list. Uh, but while you're turning there, I want to introduce this idea that we're going to see pop up throughout the year. It's not necessarily one particular series. It's more a concept that will be behind a lot of what we teach and emphasize, and that's this word revolutionary. And I realize for some people that that brings up bad, you know, bad connotations. It might have negative implications. Uh, might be something that's scary or uh, uncertain. I realize that, but I want us to learn to look at this idea of revolutionary as something to be sought after. I want revolutionary to be a badge of honor for us, a goal for us, because when you look at revolutionary, I believe you're looking at the message of salvation. You're looking at the gospel. What is revolutionary? As a person, a revolutionary is someone who looks at the way things are and they're not okay with that, so they do something about it. I want that to describe us. And when you look at revolutionary as a concept, right, if something is revolutionary, it changes everything. The smartphone came along and we could never go back to the way things used to be. It drastically impacted everything around it, right? That's the gospel. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is new. The gospel is different. And please hear me on this. I'm not saying the gospel has changed. God's word is the same. It always has been. God is the same. He has always been. God doesn't change. God changes everything he encounters. You cannot interact with God's word and not be affected by it in some way. Last week for Easter, right, we looked at mercy and grace. Those are revolutionary compared to the belief systems in this world around us, right? So many of these other belief systems say, here's what you have to do. Here are the things you have to do. Here's the checklist you have to work your way through. God says, no, it's about grace. It's what I've done for you. There's nothing you can do. That is radically different. That is revolutionary to the world. And unfortunately, I don't think revolutionary describes the majority of Christians. I don't think revolutionary describes the majority of American churches. And that's tragic because as we'll see today, God is a God of new things. God is a God of change. He is moving forward. He does not stay in one place. He is not stagnant. He is not moving backwards. And so I want the church 
to join in that. I want us to respond like that because, again, this all starts with God. God is revolutionary. God is always doing something new. The question is, will we discern it and will we have the courage to join in it? And this isn't just me. I'm not saying God is revolutionary doing new things just because I felt like it. God declares this about himself. Let's open up. Let's look at Isaiah 43, verses 16 to 19. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. So that's the description of God, right? And what's that? If you are familiar with the Bible at all, maybe that brought something to mind for you. What did that make you think of? Exodus, right? When God is leading his people out of Egypt and God parts the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army chases them into the sea and then the waters come crashing back down over Pharaoh's army and the people are able to get out, God made a way in the sea, a path in the waters. So that's the description of God. And then this is what he says, starting in verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God declares this about himself. He says, don't remember the former things. Don't consider the things of old. And he's not saying, don't remember the lessons learned from them. He's saying, don't dwell on them. Don't consider these things as most important, the things of old, the former things, because I am doing something new. He says, behold, it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? And what's interesting, and I think very telling is, right, we started with the reminder of he made a way in the sea. God made a dry path through what was wet. And then what's it say? Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. God's new thing that he's describing about is the complete opposite of the old thing that we started with. And I'm not saying that every new thing is going to look like the exact opposite of how it used to be. But what we see in this is that God does new things. The question is, do we perceive him? And then when we learn about these new things, they might not look exactly like the old things. The old thing was a dry path through the wet sea. The new thing is a wet path through the dry desert, right? God declares, I do new things. And this isn't the only time God says this. Let's turn a few books forward to Haggai. This is Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Listen to this verse, verse 9. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Once again, we see God does something new. The latter will not be identical to the former. And God says the latter days will be greater than the former days. The question then is, like in Isaiah, do we recognize the new things that God is doing? Are we willing to accept them? Or are we clinging to the old things, wondering why he's not doing it exactly like he used to? And the simple answer is, because that's not how God works. He says, do not consider the former things. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. 
And this isn't just God speaking. Jesus encountered this same issue in the people of his day, and Jesus taught this exact same lesson. We're going to turn to Mark 7. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. If you're in a physical Bible, uh, find the New Testament where it begins. It'll begin with Matthew. Mark will be the very next one. Okay, this is one of what's referred to as the Gospels, uh, very Christ-centric books of the New Testament. And this is a conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees, who Jesus butted heads with frequently because the Pharisees would not accept Jesus as the Messiah. And listen to what he says to them in Mark 7. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They clearly weren't in a pandemic, right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that kind of hand washing. When it says they ate with hands that were unwashed, and you'll see this in the coming verses, the Pharisees were all about ritual. They were all about pomp and circumstance. So this wasn't a simple getting clean after coming in to eat. This was a very elaborate, prolonged process, right? Something that was very ritualistic and all about making them feel better than the regular person who didn't go through all of these motions. They do not eat, for the fair, this is verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Do you see what the Pharisees were concerned about with their question? Why do they not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Why don't they behave like how we've always behaved? Why don't they do what we've always done? Why are they doing something different? And Jesus replies to them, this is verse 6, And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. See, once again, we see people more concerned with the past than with what's going on right in front of them. The entirety of the Old Testament points to the coming Messiah. It points to the person of Jesus. And when Jesus came... These leaders, these rulers didn't even recognize him because they were so obsessed with the past. And they were so obsessed with how they had always done things. And they were so obsessed with their rituals and their traditions and everything that made them feel good about themselves and comfortable. And we know this, this is familiar, that they missed Jesus right in front of them with what he was teaching. And he calls this out. He addresses it. He also addresses it. This isn't the only time. We also see this in Luke 5, 36 to 39. Again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. Luke 5, right after Mark, so you don't have to go very far. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will ruin the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. And there are three flaws 
in this Pharisee's way of thinking that we see Jesus address in these parables. And it's the same flaws that pop up for us today when we are more concerned with the former days than with the present days or the latter days. When we're more concerned with what God did in the past than the new thing that is springing forth in front of us. The first flaw we see when we talk about no one takes a piece from an old gar- from a new garment to try and patch up an old garment. Jesus is saying if you get a new cloak, you don't cut it up and ruin it to try and fix the old cloak that you're holding on to because now you've ruined the new one and it doesn't even match the old one. The new thing does not look the same as the old thing. Why are we holding on to the old thing instead of embracing the new thing? Instead of trying to cut it up and ruin it just to preserve the old coat. And then he goes on and he uses the example of wine. And he says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Right? Because sometimes you may say, okay, I get it. New stuff has to happen. Things have to change. But I'm going to try and force this new stuff into the old mold that I'm familiar with. Right? I know this. This wineskin, it's been with me for a while. I'm used to it. I like it. I'm going to try and make this new wine fit into that old wineskin. And what happens? The old way breaks, the new wine pours out and is ruined, so now you have neither. And then the third flaw we see is in the final sentence, and don't, don't misunderstand this, when Jesus says, no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Jesus is not saying, the old is good. You should reject the new, stick with the old. He's talking about an attitude of complacency. It's, eh, the old's good, the, old, the old's fine. Yeah, you've got this new thing, but you know what? The old works. I'm fine just sticking with the old how it is. This isn't contentment. Contentment is a beautiful, wonderful thing. We've talked about contentment in this church body multiple times. We should pursue contentment. We should embody contentment. This is complacency. This is a problem. And Jesus gets even more bluntly direct when he talks about this. This is in Luke 9. Luke chapter 9 verse 62. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You can't get any more straight to the point than that. When Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Because here's what's happened. Here's what happens. When you try and plow, but you're looking back the whole time. Oh, what have I done? What, what's behind me? You plow crooked moving forward. So what Jesus is saying is, look, when you are so obsessed with, when you are so focused on, when you are so bent on holding on to the past, to everything behind you, you completely cripple the present. You ruin what is going on right now. You, you mess up everything in front of you by refusing to let go of what's behind you. This is a very dangerous attitude. God is doing new things. God is putting new wine into new wineskins. We can't try and force it into old wineskins. God is giving us new garments. We can't tear up the new garments to try and patch and preserve the old garments. And I'm not talking about, okay, don't panic and don't take this too far. I'm not saying change just, just for change's sake, right? This isn't a, oh yeah, why not? Every six months we'll tear everything down, we'll scrap it. We'll throw it out just so that we can claim we're constantly fresh and new. I'm saying we have to recognize what God is doing and we have to be willing to join in on that rather than holding to the past. And this is tough. This is a very tough lesson. And like I said, 
I've wanted, this has been a burden on my heart for a while. I first started outlining this idea of revolutionary lives back last fall in September or October. But I just, I don't approach preaching with a, I'm going to talk about what I want to talk about, that's it, right? My approach, because the only way that makes sense to me is, God, what are you teaching me? Right? What is? What are you laying on my heart to share with your people? And so every time I've approached this idea of revolutionary, I've gotten that check of, nope, not yet. We're going to talk about this right now. Okay. Up until this moment. And in this month, as I've thought, as I've, as I've thought about this idea, God has brought me back to it. And I finally felt, okay, now is the time to talk about this. Because whether or not, whatever your perspective is on this, this pandemic, this isolation, this quarantine, this is something that's a game changer, right? This has affected every aspect of life. And so this is a perfect time to look at the question of how do we respond to change? And that's why I wanted to look at what is God's opinion on change? What is God's approach to change? Because we we have disguised an aversion to change as nostalgia. And we've made nostalgia a thing to be admired. And, you know, nostalgia is a good thing, right? Think about it. We say things like, ah, the good old days. Do you remember the good old days? Do you remember how it used to be? I wish it were still like that. Oh, if only things were like that. I miss the past. I miss how it used to be. I wish it would be like that. And so it's very subtly become completely acceptable for us to spend our lives looking back, wanting what's behind us instead of recognizing what's going on in front of us. And I'm left with the inescapable realization that if God is a God who does new things, God says, behold, I do new things. They are pouring forth in front of you. Do you not perceive them? The former days they won't compare to the latter days. The latter days, the glory of the latter days will be greater than the former days. I'm doing something new. Jesus spoke about this. Jesus taught about this. Jesus said, if you put your hand to the plow and you look back, you are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. God and Jesus took change. They took new things very seriously. So I am left with the absolute certainty that I need to be the same. And anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ needs to have the same mindset of not looking back when we're at the plow, of not missing the Messiah in front of us because we are so focused on our pharisaical traditions behind us. That is where I cannot help but arrive at after looking at what God and Jesus say about this. Paul also arrived at this conclusion well before I did. This is what Paul says in his letter Philippians. This is Philippians 3, 13 to 15. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Paul hits everything that we've already talked about. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own already. He deals with complacency. Uh-uh, I'm not there. This isn't a plateau. We haven't hit the peak. 
We haven't evened out. We can't just coast. I do not consider that I have already made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Earlier in chapter 3, go back and read all of Philippians chapter 3. Because to start the chapter, Paul lays out everything that lies behind him. Paul lays out his history. He lays out some of the highlights of it, right? I had all this power. I had all this wealth. I had all this influence. I was the most educated. I was the most respected. I was a leader. Paul lays out all the things that would have been perceived as good from his past. Paul lays out all the things that would have been bad from his past, right? I was persecuting the church. I didn't know what I was doing. So the lesson here is not just we forget the good, we forget the bad. And again, I'm not saying you don't learn from it, right? The Israelites were constantly erecting memorials and building monuments to remind themselves of the lessons of what God had done in the past. The problem is not memories of the past. The problem is an obsession with the past. The problem is a focus on the past. The problem is a commitment to the past at the expense of the present and what God is doing. And that's what Paul is getting at. He says, I forget what lies behind. Because if I look at what's good in the past, I might be tempted to want to go back to that. And if I look at what's bad in the past, I might be tempted to let that cripple me moving forward as I just, I've got too much baggage, right? There's too much weight behind me. My past is too big of a blemish for me to move forward. So in either direction, good or bad, Paul says, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on to the goal. The language in this is about a runner in a race, racing for the finish line, straining for the finish line, putting all of their effort to move forward to get to the goal. And that's not just, you know, what pops into my mind. That's the actual language that he uses. That word press on toward the goal, the Greek word for press on, referred specifically to sprinters. And it meant energetic, aggressive action. It meant forward momentum against everything, right? Can we describe our lives as aggressively, energetically moving forward? Can we describe our pursuit of Christ as aggressive, energetic action toward the goal? Or have we allowed ourselves to keep peeking over our shoulder? Oh man, that was, do you remember how it used to be? Man, I miss the good old days. Oh, got it, got to move forward. Well. Man, I've got baggage behind me. Ah, that's, it's too much of a weight. Okay, oh, I've got to move forward. Does that describe us? Or do we press on? Are we aggressively, energetically moving forward to the goal? What does he say? Straining forward, pressing on toward the goal, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Everything that he is writing about here is about something new, something different, not what's behind. And what does he say? He wraps up this personal reflection with a challenge. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. What's the implication there? What's the opposite of that? If maturity is to think this way, if maturity is to forget what lies behind as we press forward, as we strain forward towards the goal, if that's maturity, then looking back is immaturity. I'm sorry, but it is. He says it plainly there. Looking back is immaturity. It's not appropriate to spend our whole time looking backwards, yearning for what's behind, longing for the past. And if you think that's not direct enough, 
Let's read Ecclesiastes. This is Ecclesiastes 7.10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. That's pretty direct. There's, there's no way of getting around that. Say not, why were the former days better than these? Oh, it used to be so much better. The old days were so much better. The old ways were so much better. Why were the old ways so much better than today? It's not from wisdom that you ask this. It's not from maturity that you look backwards. So I have to ask myself, am I someone who's desperately clinging to the past, trying to preserve an old garment, trying to force new wine into an old wineskin, holding on to what's behind, asking, why can't we go back to the way things used to be? Does that describe me? Because it doesn't describe God. It doesn't describe Jesus. It doesn't describe the apostles of the New Testament. So why should I be okay if that describes me? Why should I be okay if that describes our church? Why should any of us allow ourselves to think like that? And that's what I want to wrap up with, right? Hopefully by now, it's pretty clear that God is a God of change. God is a God of something new. His grace and His mercy, they're revolutionary. They're different. He does different things. The present isn't going to look like the past. The future is not going to look like the present. So the question then is, what's my relationship to change? What's my approach to something new, something different, something that might seem revolutionary to me? Do I resist it? Or do I wisely perceive it? And do I have the courage to join in? If you were able to watch our live stream two weeks ago, I mentioned I was reading in Joshua, a book in the Old Testament, specifically chapters 6 through 10, where it's talking about the people, God's people, the Israelites, coming into the land he had promised them. And they have all these obstacles. They have all these enemies in front of them. And when you read through chapters 6 through 10, these enemies, these obstacles just get conquered and torn down one after another. And when you get to the end of chapter 10, it's a roll call of this enemy fell, this enemy fell, this enemy fell, this enemy fell. And one of the final verses of chapter 10 explains, it says, because the Lord God of Israel fought for his people. All these obstacles that were in the way of his people being where he wanted them to be, moving forward into what he wanted them to move forward into, all these obstacles were destroyed because the Lord God of Israel fought for his people. I cannot help but think that's what's going on right now. Think of every obstacle, and we're not going to be able to think of every obstacle, but let's think of some of the more common obstacles that stand in our way of moving forward in our relationship with Jesus, that stand in the way of a greater depth of maturity and time and passion and learning with him, right? We're too busy. We're driving around. We only have two kids, but we've got 17 different sports practices on one night. How is that possible? We are too busy. Not anymore. Okay, well, even when I'm home, the game is on, and actually three different games are on, and I wanted to spend time with God, but I got distracted. I got distracted by all the media that was available to me. Not anymore. Well, our family, we would spend more time in devotionals, but we're constantly so busy. We're running in a thousand different directions. We just kind of wave to each other in the driveway as we head out. Not anymore. I cannot help but think that we are in a time where the Lord God has gone to battle for his people. 
where he is tearing down the obstacles that stand in the way of his people moving forward. And sadly, tragically, so much of the conversation in this time is about people facing backwards. I mean, really, it's so sad to see how many conversations that, and I'm not just talking about, I'm talking about the national level, the international level, state level, local level. How many people I see having conversations like, okay, well, what can we do to get back to how the way things were? When will things return to the way they were? How can we get back to what it used to be? When will things return? When will they go back? So many of our conversations, so many of our people are facing the wrong direction. And look, don't get me wrong. Obviously, there are things that I want to go back to the way they used to be, right? I want people to not be sick. I want hospitals to not be crammed, and I want people to be working again. I want those aspects to resume, right? Don't, come on. I want that stuff to go back to the way it used to be. But truthfully, when people say, oh, you know, when will things get back to the way they used to be? My blunt answer is, I hope the majority of it never does. I hope most of life never returns to what it used to be. Because think about what it used to be. It used to be casual Christianity. It used to be complacency. Yeah, things are good enough. I'll engage with God if it's convenient, you know, if I remember to, if I can find time in my schedule. I'll, I'll give God time, you know, if I stumble across it. I'm, I'm stretched too thin. I'm busy. I'm stressed about how busy I am. I'm running in a thousand different directions. I don't really have time for my family. I don't really have time for my friends. You know, but I see them once a week. So that, I mean, yeah, we talk for like two minutes after the service, but that's, that's good enough for relationships, right? Because I'll see them once a week. What about any of that do you want to return to? I, I would be devastated if at the end of this year, things look just like they did a year ago. I would be absolutely crushed. It would be so disappointing if we get out of this and we just go right back to the way things were. Because here's what I've seen over the last few weeks. And this is one of the beautiful things about Facebook, right? I, I'm not just, I love all of you guys here in Mansfield, but you're not my only friends. I have friends spread out across this country. So I'm seeing things going on across this country. And I am specifically talking about a lot of what I'm seeing here in Mansfield what I'm seeing here in our church body. I'm talking about both. I'm seeing way more posts of family mealtimes and of family game nights and playing board games together and watching movies together and just hanging out together as a family and eating dinner and then going to play in the yard together because you're not trying to wolf down food as you run out the door. I'm seeing families take walks together. I'm seeing people talk about calling their friends a different friend every day. I'm seeing relationships go deeper. And this, I'm talking very specifically about our church. One of the things that I've been so encouraged by is every time I talk to, to different ones of you, you mention how you were talking to someone else within the church. I'm seeing relationships go deeper as we have to intentionally pursue fellowship and connection, right? I'm seeing people help one another. I've seen way more posts in the last few weeks about, hey, who needs help? I'm running to the stores. Does anyone need anything? What can I do for you? How can I be there for you? How can I show love to you in this time? I'm seeing way more of this stuff than we did a month ago, two months ago. 
I don't want to go back to the way things were. I want us to move forward. Because again, and I want to emphasize this, when I talk about revolutionary change, when I talk about looking at the way things are and not being okay with it, and doing something about it, when I talk about something new and different, I'm not talking about the person of God changing. I'm not talking about the promises of God changing, right? This is not, God is not having to scramble to adapt to this virus. This virus did not catch him off guard. He's not, you know, for people, sometimes we start a sentence and we don't know where it's going and we hope we just find it along the way, right? That's not how God works. God's not trying to figure out the end to his promise as he's going through it. So this isn't something unexpected for God. This is part of God's plan. And what did God say in Isaiah? Behold, I am doing something new. Now it springs forth. Do you perceive it? So my question, my question for all of us is, what are we going to do about this change? What are we going to do about what we've learned over these weeks in quarantine? Right? I've seen a lot of you guys post about, I'm really loving this aspect. Or kind of, you know, we recycle a lot of those same nice well-illustrated posts about, here's what I hope is different. Do we? Because truthfully, I expect for most of the world, within a month, two months, six months, a year, slowly but surely, most of the world will go back to the way things were. We'll get out of this and we'll rush to fill our calendars back up, and then we'll complain about how busy and stressed we are. We'll forget to call our friends in the middle of the week, and then we'll complain that we don't feel close to anyone. We'll forget to offer help, we won't be offered help, and we'll complain about how distant and cold the world is. For most of the world, I expect that they will slowly but surely revert back to how it used to be. But here's the thing, we're God's church. We're not called to be like the rest of the world. We're called to be different. We're called to look different. We're called to live different. We're called to love differently. It's a revolutionary love. It's a revolutionary lifestyle that is new and different from the world around us. So my question is, what are you going to do about this change? Are we going to try and cling on to what the past was like? Are we going to hold desperately to that old garment, hoping to preserve it by cutting it up and ruining the new thing? Because we're used to what we used to have. Or are we going to recognize that God is a God who does new things, that God is a God of change, that God moves forward, that Jesus calls for us to move forward, that the call on our lives is to move forward with Christ? And are we going to embrace that? Because I think a revolutionary church will. I don't want to be normal. I don't. I don't want to be like everyone else. I don't want you to be like everyone else. I don't want our church to be like any other church. I want us to be revolutionary, radically different, because we serve a revolutionary, radically different God. He is doing something new right now. Do we perceive it? Do we have the courage to join in? I pray we do. Please join me in prayer. God, for whatever it is you're doing in all of our lives, I pray that it sinks deep to the core of us. I pray that these lessons we learn, 
in this time takes such a deep hold in our hearts that even when this is over and things start to shift back, that the truths we've learned in this time can't possibly be budged because we recognize that it is what you have taught us. And we recognize that it is what you are doing. And I ask that you would give this church the courage to be different for you. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.